The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading today is from John 2, 13 through 22. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Shannon. Well, good morning. It's good to be uh, with you all. I always love coming here. My wife, Diane, and I do love coming uh, to CPC Music Row. Again, as Stacy said, I'm uh, David. I'm one of the pastors over at Christ Prez. Um, love the reading of the Word, and, and it is the Word of God. It is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and the drippings of the honeycomb. Would you pray with me? Uh, gracious Father, uh, we thank you for this, your Word, and we would ask now that... Um, that your Holy Spirit would delight in his ministry of illumination, helping us to understand this word. Uh, give us grace this morning to see that when we fail, Jesus, the Son of God, on our behalf, mightily prevails. For we ask it in his glorious name, the seed who crushed the serpent's head, and the Alpha and Omega. Amen. Well, I, um, I have been thinking for some time now about... Um, doing a series of blog posts that I'm going to entitle the C.S. Lewis Dirty Dozen uh, because there, there are about 10, 11, 12 C.S. Lewis quotations that we preachers, uh, especially in our circles, and Stacy, you know this to be true, that we just sort of recycle. And, and I'm thinking about calling them the Dirty Dozen because it's the same C.S. Lewis references over uh, and, and again. And I, I have my suspicions that, that sometimes many of us as preachers may not be mining those quotations right out of the text of Lewis and, and reading them in full context. I have a feeling it is either brainy quote or we're just lifting them out of Tim Keller sermons and then just recycling them. But I'm thinking about doing this series of blog posts because there's so much in the context of many of those great, uh, great quotations. And then there's so much more in C.S. Lewis that we never hear about because we just hear those dirty dozen over and again. And, and you probably know what some of them are. Uh, obviously, I think there are two that probably vie uh, for the most well-worn and recycled quotations of C.S. Lewis 
in, in sermons that you hear, obviously one of them is from the weight of glory, making mud pies in a ghetto when the offer of a holiday at the what? Sea is offered. And some of you maybe have come back from spring break and you've just had a holiday at the sea. And so you know the joy of that. The other one, of course, uh, you perhaps have heard, and, and even if no one's ever read C.S. Lewis, all you had to do was watch The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and you, some of you are nodding. You know exactly where I'm going. You get to the end of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and Lucy asks Mr. Beaver, is he quite safe? And what does Mr. Beaver say to Lucy? Safe? Who said anything about safe? He isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. And, uh, and those, you know, those quotations come over and, yeah, but, but we hear that. He is not safe, but he is good. And we just sort of nod, and, and there's just this little unspoken amen in our hearts. Lord Jesus is not safe, but he's good. And it just warms our hearts. Makes us feel, really? really? Are, are you willing? We sang about Jesus being a warrior earlier. Are you and I willing to deal with a Savior who is not safe? who is not tameable, who is not susceptible to all of my efforts to give him an image consultation. Um, Aslan, he's not safe, but, but he's good. And again, we, we just approve. Here's the thing, it's similar to like going to a zoo, right? And you go to big cat country at, at say, the St. Louis Zoo, and you marvel at the lion, and it just overwhelms you, the, the majesty of a lion. And you say, I could just stand and look at this lion all day long as my favorite of all the animals of the zoo. And in fact, maybe on your way out, you go buy little Johnny or little Sally a stuffed lion in the gift shop, Right? It's one thing to see a lion in the zoo. You wouldn't want to wake up in the morning, brew your Keurig coffee, and look out in the backyard and see a lion there. M much less would you want uh, Mufasa to waltz into your living room, right? It's just not safe, not, uh, not tameable. John begins his gospel with the language of Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh, he tabernacled among us. He dwelt among us. And, and that Greek word there literally is he pitched his tent and has reference uh, to the wilderness wandering of the people of God in the Old Testament where the tabernacle, which was sort of a portable temple, could be set up. They would worship. God would dwell with them. They could take it down and, and, and take, it, take it with them. And he begins with this language of creation from Genesis chapter 1 because John is wanting to say with the incarnation of Jesus, new creation has begun. New creation for you, new creation for me, new creation for the entire cosmos has begun. But, but John goes on to tell us that he came into his own, and his own received him not. And you turn the page, chapter 2, and John gets the story underway in earnest. He gets the story underway by taking us to a wedding where Jesus' creational powers are on grand display as he turns water into wine, but not just any water, water that was in six stone water jars, that were used for Jewish ritualistic purification. And, and, and then, the next thing you see, what we read this morning, uh, Jesus waltzes into the temple and rearranges the furniture. As Tim Keller says here in chapter 2, Jesus is both a party maker and a party pooper. He's a party maker at the wedding and a party pooper in, in the temple. 
And then from there, the end of chapter 2 into chapter 3, John lets us eavesdrop on a conversation between Jesus and Rabbi Nicodemus, the theologian of the Old Testament in those days. And, and, and in, all of these, in all of these situations, in the first couple of three chapters, we see Jesus addressing Judaism's take on what being clean actually required. And as the supreme fulfillment of, of Old Testament Jewish ritual cleansing, Jesus fulfills Isaiah's prophecy that when the Messiah came, the new wine of salvation would be made available to us. In the temple, he challenges the question of authority. Whose authority is going to hold sway in the temple? His or the religious leaders? His or mine? Yours? In the next chapter, he, he challenges the, the prevailing understanding with Nicodemus of the, of the person and power of the Holy Spirit's purpose in, in our salvation. As he asked Nicodemus after he said, you must be born again, and then comes around and says, Nicodemus, you are the teacher of Israel? You're the resident theologian around here, and you don't get it? You don't understand these things? See, Jesus sucks up to no one. He sucks up to no one. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Not always. Bottom line, Jesus is committed to wrecking you so that you can worship him. Two things this morning as we consider the text before us. Number one, ritualism corrupts everything. Ritualism corrupts everything. Number two, the resurrection changes everything. Ritualism corrupts everything. Passover as we've just read in the text, Exodus 12, right? It occurs on the first full moon following the spring equinox on the 14th of the Hebrew month of Nisan, toward the end of March or April, right? Where, where we are now. John features Jesus showing up seven times in his Gospels at Jewish feasts. And, and in each one of these situations, in the three years of life and ministry that, that John covers in his Gospel, Jesus is fulfilling the meaning of each of, of the festivals, showing that, that he is Israel's Messiah. Now Passover, as maybe some of you uh, will recall, recounts and celebrates the story of God's deliverance of his people from Egyptian slavery, after which Israelite homes were passed over by the angel of death as long as the, the doorposts were, were marked with the blood of the sacrificial lamb. It was a holy, a, a festive celebration central to Israel's identity. And perhaps even more central to Israel's identity was the temple itself, the, the setting of what we've just read here in chapter 2. It was magnificent. Herod the Great began building this temple about 20 years prior to the birth of, of Jesus, it was truly massive. Marble, gold, white stones, covered walkways, carved wood relief everywhere with, with trees and, and all kinds of beautiful things carved, carved in. It was truly one of the wonders of, of the world. In fact, in Mark chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, uh, Jesus and his disciples come out of the temple and, and, and the disciples say to Jesus, Teacher, look at these incredible buildings. And Jesus says, I'm, I'm going to tell you something here. There will not be one stone left upon another that will not be thrown down. And I'll say more about that here in just a few minutes. But John records uh, a temple cleansing here at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we have the, the record of, a, of another temple cleansing toward the end of Jesus' ministry. I, I agree with D.A. Carson and other uh, New Testament scholars that the clearest way to read this text is that there are actually two temple cleansings, one at the beginning and, and one at the end of Jesus' ministry. And one of the details about this first event is Jesus making a whip of cords. Make a whip of cords. Why? 
because he saw a, a great mass of people buying and selling. There were booths franchised out by Annas, the, the high priest. And the, and the temple was literally growing filthy rich in, in the true sense of the word. And what Luther did with a hammer in 1517, Jesus is going to do with a whip here. He's going to go in and, and, and set out to reform his church. And Jesus burns with, with a righteous indignation as he weaves these cords together until left, right, and center. He laid that whip across the back of, of man and, and beast. Remember, the lamb is a lion, Revelation 5, verses 5 and 6. He says, do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. And when he does that, he's fulfilling Malachi. Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. The last book of the Old Testament, followed by 400 years of prophetic silence until the coming of Jesus. And in Matthew chapter 3, Malachi promises that when the Messiah comes, he is going to come like a refining fire. And that's what Jesus is doing here, coming into the very center of Jewish life and ritualistic religion as, as a refining fire. What was happening in the temple? should have been taking place, as usual, across the Kidron Valley on the Mount of, of Olives. Instead, animal merchants were set up, most likely in the court of Gentiles in the very temple precinct. People from all over the Roman Empire would come to Jerusalem for this, for this festival of Passover, and they would come with coinage from their own, their own territories. Uh, these monies would then be exchanged uh, for temple currency or temple coins because the temple coins uh, were made of a pure Tyrian silver and could only be used in the temple and so they would exchange their monies, their coinage from whatever area they were from and, and they, would, they would bring that. Exchange weight, rates were, were unjust to, to be sure uh, but, but the point was not that they were being treated in an unjust manner with exchange rates. Injustice was being done to those who came to buy animals to sacrifice them in worship in justice was being done at Passover not because worship was being made too expensive for them through exorbitant exchange rates it wasn't that worship was being made too costly worship was being cheapened it had been reduced to bargain basement prices worship had been reduced it, it was not too demanding but but made too inconsequential it was it was cheapened and and reduced to mere ritualism pay the price drop off your sacrifice which cost you whatever and get on with things. As D.A. Carson observed, instead of brokenness and contrition, instead of uh, holy adoration and prolonged petition, there was noisy commerce. Conviction easily gives way to convenience. Theologian David Wells wrote a book years ago called God in the Wasteland. He spoke of the weightlessness of God. The weightlessness of God, by which he, he meant that God rests all too inconsequentially upon you and me. He just rests all too lightly on us. we got to ask, how is worship reduced for us? Right? That's really the heart of what's going on here. Right? Selling animals and exchanging uh, coinage, that was a common thing. It shouldn't have been going on in the temple precinct, right? But that really wasn't the heart of the issue. Even, even the unjust exchange rates wasn't the heart of the issue. The heart of the issue for Jesus was the heart of worship. That worship was being reduced to just ritualism, something that you could buy and just get on with. How is worship reduced for us? Uh, Dr. Ligon Duncan, who's Chancellor of Reformed Theological Seminary, said recently, if your Sunday worship service is about entertainment, your people will think the chief end of God is to entertain them. Um, we, we spend a lot of time today in the church, it's really, 
a staggering thing. We spent a lot of time in the church today asking questions about whether or not people like our worship services. Don't misunderstand me. Uh, number one, I love our worship. This was so cool this morning. I wanted to jump up and sing. I don't know if Rhett would have allowed that. He would have probably just stopped and said, would you please sit back down? But we, we ask this question all the time. Do people like our worship services? Um, don't misunderstand me. Being obtuse and culturally insensitive uh, and irrelevant in worship under the guise of putting God first misses the heart of God as well. And, and thankfully, what, what you experience here at CPC Music Row, uh, under Stacy and Brett and the elders' leadership is thoughtful, intentional liturgy that lifts high the name of Jesus, that, that lifts our hearts, lifts our heads, makes us want to lift our hands, right? Praise God that all over this, this city there are churches that lead worship services that are costly, right? Worship services that, that make you think, that, that cost you, uh, make you inconvenience yourself, make you reevaluate yourself. You know, worship services that make you question whether your epistemology and ethics are in sync. In other words, your epistemology, a biblical basis for knowing, and, and ethics, a biblically submitted approach to living. Are those two things in sync? We need worship services that make us think about those kinds of things. We, we need to long, and, and, and follow me here, we need to long for worship services that wreck us a little bit. We, we need worship services that, that sometimes make us feel guilty. Not, not shaming, but, but arousing feelings of guilt, awareness of sin, realization that, that repentance may be lacking in certain places in our lives, right? If you have a pain somewhere in your body, right, that pain is there to point to some underlying cause. If you have a pain in your body, that pain is, is an indicator that something may be wrong. Right? We need worship to bring a sense of conviction and at times feelings of guilt, not shaming, right? Our shame has been laid upon Christ and ultimately so has our guilt, but, but feeling at times an awareness that I need to repent. F feeling at times that, uh, an awareness that, that I'm compromised, that, that I'm treating God as just a matter of convenience, right? One that, that brings us to, to Jesus who is the lion who, who will stare us straight in the eye confront us but but worship services that also bid us run to the table right where jesus welcomes sinners as his little sisters and his little brothers please understand that there was worship going on in the temple in jesus day there was worship going on in this very scenario significant life reorienting worship life reorienting worship of ritualism worship of money worship of convenience worship of of authoritarian power as John Calvin said in his commentary on Acts chapter 2 our hearts are fabricum idolorum fabricum idolorum our hearts are idol factories we just crank out idols all the time and we bow down to those idols and and we expect those idols to satisfy and and, and to fulfill us and the interesting thing is is that every idol I crank out off the assembly line of, of my deceptive heart that that idol looks just like me and the next one looks just like me right See, Jesus wasn't concerned ultimately here about the arrangement of the money changers' tables. Um, to be sure, it should have been happening across the Kidron Valley on the Mount of Olives. He wasn't even concerned first and foremost that money changing was going on. That was the way of things. It's how it was done. He wasn't after tables or coins or animals. He was after hearts. He's after your heart. He's after my heart this morning. Misunderstand the reality that you were made for intimate temple fellowship 
with your creator. Misunderstand the reality that, that you were created, you were designed for desire. You, you were created to crave intimacy, temple intimacy with the triune God. Misunderstand that. And, and, and the whole trajectory of your worldview will be skewed from the beginning. The way you view ultimate reality, the way you view pain and suffering, the way you view what it means to be human, uh, to be you, sex, money, relationships with those around you. St. Augustine, who lived from 354 to 430, said in the first section of the first chapter of the Confessions, O oh Lord, you've made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. My heart defaults to restlessness because I'm spring-loaded for worship. I'm going to worship. I'm going to worship every day, and so are you. Right? The question is, what are we worshiping and why? Are we, are we ready? Right? Are you ready to see Jesus storm the gates of your heart? Rearrange your life, rearrange your desires, rearrange your worldview, your convictions, rearrange right, your feverish guarding of your convenience. Are, are you ready for him to turn over the tables, rearrange the furniture of your heart? You ready to see the fire in his eyes as he makes his way toward you? Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, no. Your sovereign Lord, relentless and wild, untamable not susceptible to our efforts to domesticate him. Getting back to C.S. Lewis, you know, when he said that Aslan was not safe, but he was good, and then he just lets it go, and Aslan walks off. Um, one of the most poignant examples of that uh, is in a place, I wonder if you've read it, uh, Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And anytime I hear someone say that Voyage of the Dawn Treader is their favorite, of the Chronicles of Narnia, oftentimes I think I might know why. You remember Eustace, he gave into temptation, he gave into greed, he takes on the bracelet, and suddenly instead of a little boy, he starts to develop scales like a dragon, and, and thick dragon skin is, is all over Eustace, and, and, he, and he tries so hard to get that dragon skin off, and he pulls the scales off, and, and it really isn't that painful for him, but, but as he pulls it off, there's, there's more underneath, more thick dragon skin underneath. And he just gives up on the idea of ever being a, a little boy again. He is caved into temptation, and he will forever be this, this knobby, gnarly, unsightly, beastly dragon. And he's explaining the situation to Edmund, right? He's telling Edmund how he has tried so hard to, to clean himself up. He's tried so hard to reform himself, and nothing worked until the lion said, you'll have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, Eustace said. I can tell you I was afraid of his claws, but I was pretty near desperate now, so I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when it began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the scales peeled off. You know, if you've ever picked the scab of a sore place, it hurts like Billy-O, but it is such fun to see it coming away. I know exactly what you mean, said Edmund. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I had done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there I was, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch, and smaller than I had been. 
Then Aslan caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on. And he threw me into the water. Right? It's a reference to the sacrament. After that, it became perfectly delicious. After it had smarted for a moment, it became perfectly delicious. As soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I had turned into a boy again. You'd think me simply phony if I told you how I felt about my arms. I know there's no muscle on them, and they are pretty moldy compared with Caspians, but I was so glad to see them. After a bit, the lion took me out and dressed me. Dressed you? Asked Edmund, with his paws? Well, I don't exactly remember that bit, but he did somehow or another dress me in new clothes. Priestly garments. What do we read about ourselves in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10? But you are a chosen generation. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession, declaring the praises of him who brought you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so you have on the priestly garments because you are priests to God. You have on the robe of Christ's righteousness, Isaiah 61.10, new clothes for you. And Jesus can do that because while ritualism corrupts everything, the resurrection changes everything. Imagine the scene, people scurrying in all directions, stay, staying out of the way, trying to stay out of the way of one lone rabbi. <laughs> and once, once Jesus had cleared the place, his disciples recalled a psalm that many of them had learned from childhood, Psalm 69 Verse 9, zeal for your house will consume me. Where King David had grieved and lamented the way that the people of God of his day had, had dismissed God, had, had you know, reduced worship and, and his temple to ritualism back in the time of David. And, and now the true and greater David stands there in, in, in the temple, uh, the, the place cleared, feathers flying, sheep bleeding, coins clinging and clanging, animals making a break for it. Run for the Kindred Valley, freedom, we're out of here. It's just a mess. He's breathing heavily, his eyes fiery, glaring with holy anger. Religious disciple, the religious leaders come up and they push through his disciples and they, they demand a sign from Jesus. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.22, Jews are always demanding a sign in Jesus' day, in Paul's day. Reality is there was a pretty undeniable sign right in front of them. Obviously, this was not something that happened every day. It caused quite a scene. What was it about Jesus? Jesus, one lone man. In fact, we read in Isaiah 52, 13 to 53, 12, that there was nothing physically impressive about him. He was not going to walk in a room and you're just going to be physically intimidated by, by him. What was it about him, though? He's able to stroll in like a boss. Priests didn't dare stop him. Temple servants couldn't stop him. Roman guards stationed around. No one wanted a piece of that, right? Let us not forget this was no mere man. It reminds me of, of later in John's Gospel, chapter 18, verses 4 and 6. Judas has betrayed Jesus, and, and they come with a garrison of soldiers to arrest Jesus. So you have a good number of men with weapons coming to arrest Jesus. Jesus asked them, whom do you seek? And they said, we seek Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, I am he. And John says they drew back and they fall to the ground, right? 
This very one just let a little sliver of his divinity peek through. This very one who had said to Moses in Exodus 3, when Moses asked, whom shall I say is sending me? And Yahweh said, tell them I am is sending you. Jesus is none other than I am. Every one of the I am statements in the Gospel of John is Jesus saying, hey, I am Yahweh. And when he said to those who came to arrest him, whom do you seek? We seek Jesus of Nazareth. I am he. They crumbled. Their knees buckled under the weight of glory, under the weight of the one who alone could say, I am am that I am he walks into the temple here at the beginning of the gospel which leaves a mess right here's here's the reality Jesus will make what feels like a mess in our lives at times as he's putting things right they ask in effect um, who do you think you are you march in here acting like you own the place Jesus basically says well now that you mention it I do own this place as a matter of fact, I am this place. Everything the temple was always intended to be. God dwelling in intimate covenant relationship with his people is embodied in me. You want a sign? I'll give you a sign. Destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. And I love the interplay that, that follows here. It's, it's sort of like his conversation in the next chapter with the, the prominent teacher Nicodemus. Where Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again, and the Nicodemus immediately takes the conversation to anatomy, right? Well, how can a man enter his mother's womb again and be born again? I don't get it, right? And Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And they immediately start thinking about the bricks and mortar and said, wait, it's taken 46 years to build this place, and you're going to raise it in three days? You're out of your mind. And then John gives us here in verse 21, lest we be unclear, the, the, the clue, right, Jesus was talking about the resurrection of his, of his body. The reality is the Jewish leaders were already, as it were, destroying the temple. They were already destroying the temple by their commercialization and their cheapening of, of worship. Jesus knew the same attitude would foment as the seeds of desire to murder him and destroy the ultimate temple of his body were already in their hearts you see the reality is this this whole this whole book right here this entire book in your lap or on your phone right is is really a tale of trees and temples the whole thing is a tale of trees and temples genesis straight through to the maps is a tale of trees and temples right in genesis chapter 3 verses 1 to 7 we see that our first parents have fallen at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil where they ate of the forbidden fruit the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, where we sinned. There's the tree of life in Genesis 3.22. The tree of life, which would, would confirm, it was confirmatory of one's moral condition. There, there's another tree in Scripture, the cursed tree. We read about it in Galatians 3.13, Deuteronomy 21.23, 1 Peter 2.24. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And so because of our sin at the first tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right god takes us out of the garden not for punishment for protection punishment would come but adam and eve were not taken out of the garden for punishment they were taken out for protection lest they take and eat of the tree of life and live forever confirmed in their fallen decaying sick and dead rebellious state and they were taken out away from the tree of life lest they eat of it and be confirmed forever 
And do you remember in the story of Genesis how when they are taken out at the east side, there are terrible cherubim, angels placed there to guard the entrance to that temple garden and a flaming sword turning this way and that placed there at that, at that entrance. And every iteration of temple after that garden temple Every iteration of temple from the tabernacle in the wilderness, that tent that could be set up and taken down, Solomon's temple, the temple of Jesus' time, every iteration of the temple had these impressive curtains that were hanging that separated you and me from the inner sanctum, separated you and me from the very presence of God in the Holy of Holies. These curtains, some 40 feet wide, about 30 feet high, about 9 to 12 inches thick, massive curtains, layers upon layers. And and what we read in Exodus 26 verse 1 is on either side of the curtains were sewn into them cherubim to remind us, as Gandalf might say, you shall not pass. Jesus goes to the cursed tree, hangs there, a condemned criminal for me, for you. He goes to the cursed tree to pay our infinite sin debt occurred at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you remember after he died and he rose again, Matthew 27, 51. There was incredible things that happened. People got up in Jerusalem and out of the grave and walked back into town. The resurrection has a a ripple effect. But but even before that, something something also happened in Jerusalem that Matthew just kind of mentions and and just passes right over it. Jesus is hanging on the cursed tree, and as he hangs there paying for your sin and mine, imagine that you're back in the temple, right? And you're a Levitical priest just doing your duties. And yet you've heard about this radical, this one who claimed to be a rabbi, claimed to be the Messiah. Finally, the religious leaders and the Romans have colluded. We're getting rid of him. News you've heard, he's going to be executed out on a garbage heap outside the camp. Good for him, right? Getting what he deserves. And you're just going about your duties in the temple. Jesus is out dying on the cross, but you're in the temple and you begin to hear a rumbling sound, the likes of which you've never heard before. The ground begins to shake and this deafening sound of tearing, of ripping, and then right before your very eyes, the curtain falls, torn in two, down to the ground. And when the dust clears, you're staring right into the Holy of Holies. And when that curtain has fallen, what has fallen with it? The cherubim guarding the way saying, you shall not pass. Because Jesus went outside the camp. He went outside the camp where he certainly died for us. Not just so that you and I could remain inside the camp. Or even in the court of the Gentiles. But so that you and I would have full access into the very heart of the temple. Into the very heart of intimacy with God himself. We read in Hebrews chapter 4 verses 14 to 16. Therefore since we have a great high priest. Jesus the son of God who has passed through the heavens. Let us hold unswerving to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who is at all points tempted even as are we. Yet was without sin. Therefore let us approach boldly. Not with arrogance or timidity but with a holy, grace-enabled boldness to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. And then how do we read when we come to the end of this book? (laughs) And there's three trees, right? The tree of the knowledge, good and evil. The cursed tree where Jesus died. (laughs) Turn to Revelation 22, 1 to 5 sometime. You've been invited back to the tree of life where you will take and eat of its leaves and you will be confirmed forever, not in your rebellion, not in your sickness and your decay, but in holiness and glorious priest to God forever confirmed. It's a, trail of t- it's a tale of, uh, of trees and temples. 
In fact, the Bible would say to you, not only is Jesus the temple, right? He said, I am the embodiment of the temple. So are you. One of the first passages I ever memorized as a little boy was Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, remember the old King James, and now I've got a little NIV, a little ESV mixed in. It's, it's MSV. It's Mid-South Version by this point with me, the way I have it tucked away. But I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. That's temple language. And it is an affirmation of the goodness of your physicality. We worship God as priests before him with our bodies as well as our souls. We worship God as priests in his temple as we turn away from our pet sins and consecrate our bodies to him. You know, two things that Jesus had more to say about than probably just about anything are the two things that I and you struggle with probably more than just about anything. It's money and sex. You know, wealth is a blessing. Wealth is a blessing in in Scripture. The the problem comes when our love of money, right? Our love of money takes root in our hearts. Even in this chapter here, in chapter 2, money and wealth was not the primary focus. Worship is. It just so happens, however, that when it comes to money, what we do with it, how we compromise ourselves for it, how we hoard it, how we blow it, how we may cheat or walk over others to get more of it, is a barometer of our hearts. Indeed, our view of wealth is inseparable from our view of worship. Remember, idolorum fabricum, idol factories, you and I? Our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6.19, Paul says that. 1 Corinthians 6.19, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And the context there of Paul saying that was nothing less than the Christian sex ethic. The Christian sex ethic is not a matter of being prudes but being priests to our God. The context we read about in 1 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 9, Paul says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul knew a thing or two about David Owen Filson. It's the bad news of the gospel. Here's the good news. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You are are temples of the Holy Spirit. And just like the temple in Ezekiel 45, verses 18 to 20, where cleansing blood of the sacrificial animal had to be placed upon the doorpost, the ledge of the altar, the inner court gate, so the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ has been placed upon you. Can your thievery compete with the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ? Can your adultery compete with the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ? Can your practice of sexual immorality compete with the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ? It's Martin Luther who said that when the devil confronts me and accuses me and tells me what a terrible sinner I am, he does me a great favor. 
because Christ died for sinners. Jesus' words about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem came to pass in AD 70. The temple was actually completed about six years earlier, and now it just falls as Rome comes in and levels the city, right? And because Jesus is the true embodiment of priest, of the final sacrifice for sins, of, of temple fellowship with God, there will never again be a temple built. There is no need. A whip was laid to his back so that by his stripes you could be healed, Isaiah 53, 5. We had nothing, you and I, with which to buy a sacrifice. But according to Isaiah 52, 13 to 53, 12, according to 1 Peter 1, verse 19, an unblemished lamb, pure and spotless, was offered for us. We're people of the resurrection already. Read Ephesians 1 and 2. We're people of the resurrection already as we have been brought from death to life, from darkness to light. As we've been spiritually regenerated and made new. Already we have been made Easter people as we await the not yet of the resurrection of our bodies. That's why I say so often, you've heard me say it before some of you, Christian burial is never the disposal of a body. It's a deposit of a body for safekeeping. It's a resurrection deposit because Jesus is going to make a resurrection withdrawal on the great and last day. Burial ground is ultimately resurrection ground for the Christian. Jesus' zeal for the Father's house, for the Father's glory, Jesus' zeal for you would consume him in the fire of divine wrath against our sin. I said at the beginning that Jesus would wreck you so that you could worship him. But first, he had to be wrecked so that we could be one. He gets the whip. You get the welcome. This table in front of us right now is testimony to his being wrecked for you. To the whip being laid to his back. This is a table, however, that Jesus will never overturn, but only enhance and make more glorious. It's a table that Jesus will not overturn, but this table will overturn you. It'll overturn your dependence on your own righteousness. It'll wreck your dependence on self. And he will not run you out of the sanctuary. Instead, he will say, stay, this is right where you belong. John brings his overall story to a conclusion. Not in the Gospel of John, not in his letters, but at the end of the book of Revelation. Really, it's a conclusion, but it's a whole new beginning. Uh, because he takes us to another wedding. The great wedding supper of the Lamb, Revelation 16, or 19, 6 to 10. And this table in front of us, well, it's actually the rehearsal dinner. It happens right before the wedding. And your groom, he's here. He's fiery. And he's fierce. <laughs> and he's jealous for your heart. He pries off your dragon-like scales. And he has a wedding dress waiting for you here. Come. Gracious Father, thank you for your word.